Welcome to the 18th episode of the Cranky Flyer interview presented by Ontario International Airport. It's heading toward the end of summer and you know what that means. It's time for my annual check-in with Southwest Chief Commercial Officer Andrew Watterson. Normally we get to do this in person, but this year we'll have to settle for a remote chat on everything from COVID to, yes, the Max. We're still talking about the Max. But first, I want to thank our presenting sponsor, Ontario International Airport, right here in Southern California. ONT continues to see increases in both passenger traffic and cargo. Passenger numbers continue to rise faster than the national CBP TSA stats, as I touched on at crankyflyer.com on July 28th. Cargo shipments, including important PPE, have seen growth speed up. ONT is now seeing a 28% tonnage increase year over year. In the terminals, Ontario has been working on making a clean and easy experience for all guests. ONT was the first airport in the nation to install UVC light self-cleaning technology on escalators. Overall, there's increased cleaning and disinfecting in all areas. It's a good time to remind travelers that masks must be worn at all times at ONT. The airport has installed PPE vending machines in the unlikely event that you forget to bring your own. For more, visit flyontario.com COVID-19. And now, let's get on with the show. Here we are, once again with Andrew Watterson, a year after our last podcast. Uh, the, the Boyd Conference may still be happening in October, maybe, maybe not, but I'm not taking chances. So thanks for joining me on the phone this year instead. My pleasure. It's too bad we weren't able to meet up in person. I enjoy those kind of conferences where you can get together and talk shop. Yeah, well, you know, someday, maybe, again, <laughs> we, we, will, we will have to hope. It's funny, I, I was listening, uh, I went back and I listened to our last podcast that we did. And we were really talking about the max. You were supposed to have 75 airplanes by the end of the year. And what were you going to do? And uh, Now, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> Is it, do you, I mean, I assume you may care to some extent, but really, do you? It's a more efficient aircraft. So the, the max that we own and that are um, sitting in Victorville, you know, they they would be a very efficient aircraft for us to operate now. So we're operating less than our full fleet, and if we were as part of that less than full fleet, we would normally want to operate the most efficient aircraft, so we would be operating them if they were in our fleet. Now, now it's not the time we want to go, you know, you're not going to go to buying spree for new new airplanes uh, for the short term at least. Um, and so, you know, we're it's, it's, a, it's a shame that it's still grounded, um, and once it is ungrounded, we will make use of them. Well, on the bright side, it looks like Boeing helped your liquidity a little bit recently. Yeah, in general, I would say that the fact that we were not uh, paying for aircraft throughout 2019, um, um, that was um, uh, that helped our capex and therefore our cash balance. Um, um, you know, any kind of uh, compensation they gave us, you know, that's the idea is you would have done that anyway. So, you know, if not for the max, we wouldn't have needed the payment from Boeing. Um, but it is true that we didn't spend capex um, when we were planning on it, which led to our cash balances being, you know, higher than they would have been uh, entering into this year. And it, it's funny because I, I really don't want to spend much time on the max at all this year. But uh, when I was listening to the podcast, it says you're saying, well, you know, we, we've got it pulled out until January, but we think it's reasonable that it might fly again in the fourth quarter. And I'm like, man, that would just delay that conversation for another year. 
<laughs> that's basically what's happening. I mean, do you have any visibility at this point, or do you even bother worrying about that? Well, they, they've passed some, as you know, some regulatory milestones uh, with the certification flights and with uh, um, the early part of the year with this directive um, that they've uh, got for public comment. And so the the wheels are moving, um, and so you that's much different than the last time we spoke. But it's yeah. uncertain about when it will be fit to fly, and then after that, when we will then be ready to put it in a revenue service. So you're still looking at, um, you know, months uh, from now, not weeks from now. And, of course, if it does go into revenue service, it would probably just replace other airplanes that you would then just sit on the ground somewhere anyway because there's not a need for all that extra capacity anymore like there was last year. Depends on when they arrive, you know. <laughs> right. So in 2025. Why don't you not underestimate the potential delay? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Fair, fair enough. But so, all right, enough of the max. Let's, let's get back to uh, the current state of affairs here in the world. So. <laughs> Uh, so you guys uh, came out of the blocks uh, a little more bullish than I guess others after the whole pandemic hit. You had a higher level of capacity. Of course, some of that's because you have a, a very domestic heavy schedule, which is much easier to hope for a return in demand. Uh, and it looked like things were, were tracking well, and then the wheels fell off and you pulled down August pretty late. And then just last weekend, you pulled down September uh, presumably October, November, those are going to follow as, as time goes on here. Um, <clears throat> so can you talk about what you've been seeing um, that's really informed your decisions on this? Well, when we um, published uh, the kind of fourth quarter schedules um, back in the spring, um, there was kind of two things that were noteworthy, at least in, in our point of view. One was where we were putting the capacity and then how much. And how much obviously got more play than where. But the where was in places like Phoenix and Denver and Nashville and Las Vegas. And essentially what we're saying is we're putting capacity into places where you'd see a combination of leisure and business mix. We expected business travel to be down, um, and uh, leisure usually comes back faster uh, in downturns. And so we were, where we were putting our capacity was important to us. And so we, we moved our, our footprint, if you will, uh, to take advantage of that. Um, and there was how much. And we, we looked at how, uh, for how much, we looked at how SARS happened, not here in the United States, but over in Asia, to try to estimate the duration of um, uh, a, a, a pandemic or epidemic, I guess, in that case. And that led us to think, give a, a timeline that proved to be inaccurate for when, you know, um, uh, that would be over. Because essentially what you have right now is you have two crises in one. You have a health crisis, and then you have an economic crisis. And so when the health crisis is over, you know, and we're all hoping that the vaccines and therapeutics that are in warp speed program from the government will do the trick, the, the, you'll still be left with an economic crisis. And we know how uh, those play out. And so we were, you know, getting ourselves ready for uh, the economic crisis as post-health crisis. And that's still valid. And you'll see that as we kind of as we publish forward schedules and such, we still have that in mind that is, you're, you're thinking of how will I, um, uh, you know, offer to customers and compete in, a, in an economic crisis. But between now and then, we have to deal with the health crisis. And dealing with the health crisis is more about kind of um, acting and reacting to levels of demand. And so when demand is sufficient, like it was in June and, and, and uh, a good part of July, you know, you, you add increasing amounts of capacity. Um, and when demand, um, you know, starts to taper off, 
then you have to do the reverse and pull back because ultimately what we're managing for is to reduce our cash burn because we must get back to cash burn break even because uh, that's sustainability. Then you, you stop the, the bucket stops leaking, so to speak. And so that is what the short-term capacity movement is all, all about that. Right. And so that was, you know, end of June when everything started spiking in, in the southern half of the country and, and everything just stalled, I guess. I mean, it, it didn't really it didn't really backtrack as much as it just flattened. Is that fair? Or did I mean, it, it really? Came, it came down. It didn't go negative. And the important thing is, you know, late June is when you saw, um, you know, unequivocally demand shift because of the uh, increase in cases and hospitalizations. Right. But it, it, so you know, cancellations of PNRs came up and uh, brand new bookings uh, attenuated, definitely came down. They're still um, uh, positive. The net of that is was still positive, which is very, you know, it's consequential because in, in March of, of this year, when everything went negative, you really can't sustain your capacity if you're having, you know, PNR cancellations exceeding new PNRs. Um, and we never got to that danger zone, which is, um, I'm very thankful for that. And so yeah, it was, um, um, that was the difference, um, but I wouldn't call it a kind of um, – it just stopped. It, it came down a bit, um, um, uh, and as a result, we, we took the capacity actions. So my concern about this has always been that this idea of a second wave. It sounds like this is probably still the first wave, but regardless, whatever it is, the point being that people said, okay, we're it's over or it's going down so we can start booking again, which is what you saw in June and people returning from a leisure perspective at least – then when this hit again in June, July, that scares people off. And my assumption is that now people will be more wary about coming back to travel again. So um, is that proving out in what you're seeing with your numbers? Because uh, we're at the point now where things are coming down in a lot of the, the states that were problematic before. Um, and so you might see people starting to get a little more interested in booking again. But are you seeing more wariness? Uh, I won't comment specifically on state of bookings, um, but I will say that um, uh, going a level deeper in what you just talked about, the, what we do see is differential impact um, um, on bookings by geography uh, as related to case levels. So if you go back earlier in the um, – uh, in the epidemic or pandemic, we could not necessarily correlate specifically a level of cases with, with demand, so to speak. Um, and you, we saw more of a correlation with government actions. Uh, state and local government actions would lead, you could see the clear linkage to demand. Um, now, um, as we've had a good bit more history in this recent upsurge, you do see different cities have different um, responsiveness to COVID levels, uh, come with a COVID elasticity, if you if you want. And so places like uh, California in the Northeast have a more dramatic um, reaction to uh, COVID than, you know, uh, places in the Midwest or South. And so it's more of a, you know, location by location uh, uh, situation where a given level of cases would impact a given level of demand in, in that geography. And that's probably the more dominant theme I see right now. Well, and I assume the, the quarantine rules or, you know, whatever you want to call them are also having an impact. I mean, of course, Hawaii, we can forget about that. That's obviously hugely impacted. But even I assume the New York, Florida, uh, you know, Northeast Florida type of stuff. I mean, that has to be hurting significantly from the quarantine, right? You, you Government actions, you do see a relationship with the kind of trend changes when they come into place and, and such. Um, but, it, you, you know, it's 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 hard to tease apart you know, 
government action in cases um, uh, at this point in time. Earlier on, it was clear government actions. Now it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mixture. Um, you know, when you're way below 100% demand, it's hard to say, you know, um, sometimes parse across the, uh, parse out the drivers um, at that level of detail. All right. So now you've, you've recently uh, put out your, I guess it's through into April schedule. That's correct. And so what are you, how are you modeling that? Obviously it's far away and I think most people probably expect there will be further revisions, uh, but how are you modeling that right now internally? Well, right now, that as I talked about, there was a there's two crises: a health crisis and um, uh, the economic crisis. And so, if you know, we're publishing our, our full schedule out there, and um, if the health crisis has passed uh, or is on the way out the door, so to speak, then this would be you know uh, roughly a, a good network we like for um, for an economic uh, downturn, or at least we'll probably be growing by that time. The um, the question then comes back to you know vaccines and therapeutics, and you know I won't repeat any of the headlines you've all seen, but the you know I think remarkable progress of those vaccines into phase three and when they might come into um, um, uh, you know the next phase and be you have emergency use authorization, and given that the uh, they already have um, money to ramp up manufacturing, you know I think there's a big um, you know question mark of like what will the first quarter or first half of next year look like with regards to the health crisis? And so that's, that's going to ultimately dominate what gets operated in that part of the year. So basically what you're saying is you just hope the health crisis is over and you model this out to be what you expect the economic crisis will, will support? Well, I think everyone hopes. I'm not saying we're managing by hope. What we're saying is this is appropriate for um, um, it being passed. And if it's not passed, we'll do like we're doing now, which is then you modify your capacity for what level of demand you have um, yeah. uh, in the marketplace. And you don't. You, you can expect, I think, there will be significant demand return prior to 100% of Americans being vaccinated. Even if you say, Andrew, it's going to take all of 21 for everyone to be vaccinated, uh, you, you could still see a case when there's a – a material number of people um, uh, vaccinated, and, and perhaps it's le even less than 50%, who knows, plus people are practicing, you know, uh, good hygiene with their masks and uh, and such, and therefore the transmission rate of the virus could plummet, uh, or it could go to below one sustainably, and, and the virus cases plummet. So you, you could still have a good, you know, demand return prior to 100% vaccination. So it's, uh, I don't think that's unreasonable. No, I, I would agree. I, I think, you know, you just have to have a vaccine that's proven to work so maybe the russian announcement not not so helpful uh <laughs> but, <laughs> so you even then i uh, as i said you don't need 100 percent to have substantial progress uh uh likely and plus you have the number of vaccines is is, is encouraging and i mean ultimately the body gets over uh coronavirus even though it's some people get terribly sick and, and some people pass away since the body gets over the infection, therefore vaccines can help produce antibodies to do um, to do their job, and so it's I think that gives you know one to be not so skeptical of a vaccine um, being able to uh, be effective. And number two, there's you know at least three different types of technology platforms that they're using. So once again, you have redundancy on different approaches and multiple types of vaccines in each platform. So the kind of you know, portfolio effect of the vaccines, um, I think, is quite encouraging. So it's, I think, the the very likely you have at least one, if not many, that um, are effective uh, here early next year. 
Do you have like a medical team on staff that's advising you on these things? I mean, you, you sound uh, quite well versed here, right? but you know, you, th this is stuff you need to know for the business, right? I mean, where, where do you, how do you guys collect this information and focus on it? Well, we definitely um, uh, need to stay on top of this. So this just, you know, public information, government information. We do have an advisor from uh, UT Southwestern, um, which is a, um, uh, you know, prestigious medical research facility here in Dallas. Um, and then uh, I also have to have um, um, parents and step-parents who are um, uh, medical researchers and, and do drug discovery. So um, maybe get a little bit for the home front, but uh, but we do have uh, people whose job it is is to track this and evaluate this because essentially that is going to dominate the you know return to to normalcy or path to normalcy for our industry. Yeah, yeah, no no doubt about that. But that's uh, that's an interesting. I wasn't even thinking about the uh, the backgrounds of different people, how this can impact how you view this stuff. Uh, let, let me I, I, I want to ask about the product a little bit here in uh -huh. uh, in your uh, medical opinion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a doctor, but I play one on cranky podcasts. That's right. Thank you. Uh, so. So you have uh, look. I mean, you're you're blocking. Well, not blocking middle seats, but reducing the capacity that you're selling. Uh, middle so seats open. Middle seats can be open. Uh, <laughs> open seating, man. Uh, but uh, entropy, you know, everyone spreads out. Well, you you would think. I mean, I I like that plan with my kids. I'll have them in the back of the plane, and then anyway, uh, you have that through October 31st. That's correct. So how do you? How do you figure out what that's going to need to look like and for how long? Uh, because obviously the, the virus isn't going to be gone by the end of October. Uh, there probably won't be a vaccine by then either. Uh, so, you know, how do you how do you evaluate what's the right decision on when to change that plan? Well, you can always get caught up in the in the what ifs and get paralyzed. And so, what we do is we manage what's in front of us, and we have timelines for each um, travel month. Where we make a decision on uh, both capacity levels and the middle seat open. And so, when we come up to that that milestone, we make a decision with the information that's in front of us, and then we we push it back, you know, um, uh, another month. And so, we fully expect that um, uh, to kind of keep in that month-by-month -month management while we're in the current status, if you will. Eventually, uh, this part of Southwest Promise will go away. Um, we do think about different triggers um, of when we might know that, but ultimately we're doing this because it makes customers more comfortable. Um, and when we survey customers, they realize it's not going to stay around forever. So right now we, we manage it month to month, and with the current demand levels, we don't feel like there's an economic penalty um, uh, for doing that. So we can give a benefit to the customers, and we're still taking care of our shareholders. Right, and that's the ultimate calculus is, you know, you're, if your plans aren't going to be full anyway, then might as well just take a swing, I guess. But no, no, we do add in extra sections. We do add in, you saw us in June, and you'll see it other times when, when something is getting full um, and therefore there's sufficient demand um, that we could spill. And if there's sufficient um, demand to overcome the incremental operating costs, uh, we will add extra sections that you would not have had to do if you didn't have the middle seats blocked. However, when we see the demand benefit of people's comfort levels with flying increases with the middle seat blocked, that all nets out to a, a calculation we're happy with and, and, um, and, and uh, go forward. All right. And then so the last question here. Uh-huh. October 1st, the, uh, the current cliff in the airline industry when the CARES Act rules expire, or at least the most pertinent ones from a network perspective. 
uh, how does this change the calculus when you're looking at planning? So, you know, up until then, right, you're paying employees, uh, nothing, that's effectively a fixed cost, I guess. Um, yeah, so, salary, wages, and benefits are fixed costs in this world. Yeah, but when you're thinking about post-October, how do you plan for that? I mean, you don't even know. There might be another CARES Act extension or something that would change that again. But how do you integrate that into your planning? Well, Gary has already announced that we will um, have no furloughs or pay cuts and voluntary pay cuts through the end of the year. And um, really that's in response because we had a really strong uptake uh, for which we're really grateful um, by employees to take advantage of both our voluntary separation program and what we call extended time off program. So they take either, you know, 6, 12, or 18 months off at full benefits and 50% pay. So that combination really helped move down salary, wages, and benefits. Um, there's still a fixed cost, those are remaining, but that gave us um, more breathing room. Um, and and what that does for us is your fixed cost, you can only go down so far. You can't cut your way back to cash burn break even. You eventually, you have to have flight activity that generates revenue in excess of your variable costs that contributes towards those fixed costs to get down to your, your, um, your, your cash flow break even. The lower fixed costs from these people taking these programs means there's that much less flight activity that's required uh, to kind of um, to, to pay down those fixed costs. And so that will, uh, at the margin, then mean you have uh, less flying than you would if you were fully staffed. Um, but you're still going to be in this zone where you're going to have to cover fuel costs, engine maintenance costs, you know, uh, landing fees and rentals, and maybe some other kind of incremental. Um, uh, crew-related costs or other things, but it's, it's going to be a, a low bar of incremental costs you have to cover with um, with flying, um, and so that you'll still be in that dynamic. All right. Well, thank you for your medical opinions. I mean, you're uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Hopefully, when we do this next year, we can go back to grumbling about the max again. Maybe I don't know. Maybe or, or there's always something in this industry. So there's always an angle that is something going on that's. Uh, uh, that no one expected. So there will always be endless things to be cranky about. Well, that's why we love this thing, right? Or hate it, or both. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your time, Andrew. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Stay safe and healthy. Hopefully we'll get to do this again in person sometime soon. But in the meantime, thank you once again to our presenting sponsor, Ontario International Airport, ONT. One more reminder... With passenger throughput rising faster than national CBP TSA numbers, Ontario is prepared with a focus on creating a clean, easy experience for all guests. For more details, see flyontario.com slash COVID-19. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>